0: Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, we can do better than that. Good morning, everyone. All right. Great to be with you again. And yes, you know us uh, from our ministry here. Over the last almost two years, you see us When we're not on the road traveling and ministering, Uh, we are the Smith family, and as Mandy always likes to say, yes, we do have one more daughter that you don't get to see very often, Lorelei, who's at Word of Life Bible Institute, but you know, Georgia, Warwick, and Chola, it has been almost two years since we left Zambia, Africa, to come here to Merrimack, New Hampshire, in order to lead IBM Global in facilitating gospel Advance. Everything you just saw on the video a moment ago was our lifestyle. It's what we loved. We never thought that we would ever leave there until retirement. And to come back to America was much harder than going to Africa. And coming to a part of America that we've never lived in before compounded that even more. So why? Why make the change Because this is the need that we see. Eight billion people on this planet. As of this week, eight billion. We've crossed the threshold. And 40% of those people do not know Jesus Christ. They don't even have a local church or a gospel witness in their area because of the geographic location where they live and either the, the religious or the political restrictions upon them they don't have the opportunity to hear. That's why we came back, because of the power of multiplication, to be able to lead IBM Global in being able to change that scenario so that we don't have 40% of the world's population living in a place where there is no local church. Our vision is to see healthy, multiplying churches led by well-equipped local leaders serving every community around the globe. Our mission at IBM Global is to serve local churches just like Merrimack Valley Baptist Church in sending out members as well-equipped missionaries. And right now, we serve 35 churches that have sent out their members as missionaries. And so that's why we came back. And yet, we recognize this is the part of the story that you do know. But there's a lot that you don't know, and Mandy's gonna walk us through a lot of that today.
1: So yeah, you guys have gotten to see us over the last couple of years, but very few of us of you have had the opportunity to get to know us. And a big part of our, who we are, is um, the life that we lived in Africa, because it changes you on a fundamental level. And so we thought in this slideshow, we just give you a glimpse a little glimpse into who we are and the life that we've lived uh, that's brought us to this point and what God is doing through that. So in this picture uh, back in 2000 Jamie and I took our first missions trip to Zambia Africa and that is where we got engaged at Victoria Falls it's the actual picture from our engagement um, and we had the opportunity there to travel through the bush from Livingston over all the way into Malawi um, all through the southern province of Zambia um, into the eastern province and just absolutely fell in love with the culture and the people and saw the need for what the Lord could do there. And so immediately we started praying that the Lord would take us back to Zambia. But um, instead the Lord took us on a, what we felt was a detour. Um, Jamie ended up being associate pastor at a church in West Virginia for eight years. So um our last four children were born, or our last three children were born in West Virginia, and their early childhood was in West Virginia. Um, and we had a wonderful um, opportunity there that the Lord used in our hearts and our lives to give us a, a insight into the life of pastoral ministry. And so, as Jamie is working with these African pastors, we have an understanding of what pastoral ministry really is. And that was such a blessing. And this church was such an influence in our lives that they are still today our sending church. Um, And so we still have a wonderful relationship with them.
0: And today is the 175th anniversary of that church. If we weren't already here for the missions conference, we would have been down there celebrating a momentous occasion with them today.
1: Yes, so we are so thankful for Bethel Baptist Church and all that God did in our lives and in our hearts through that, the ways the Lord equipped us for the ministry that he had prepared for us in Africa. So this is our first, do you have a blank, I think? our first prayer card uh, in 2010 when we started raising support with our little babies and had so many people asking, how could you take those little white-haired, blue-eyed babies to Africa? And our answer was always, because if that's God's will for him, then them, then that is where God designed them to grow up. And what a privilege and a blessing it was. So we raised support in about two years, and in 2012, we headed off to Zambia.
0: <laughs> Actually, a funny part to that story is we raised the support in one year, and then the mission agency we were originally with closed abruptly. We had just sent out our, our prayer letter saying... We're announcing our departure for the field and then we got an email the very next day saying actually this agency is dissolving within three days and so the the added year was spent trying to determine what ministry to partner with and that's what led us to IBM Global to join as missionaries that were being facilitated by the ministry that we now lead
1: yeah so that's pretty cool the way the Lord never expected your mission board to go under (laughs) totally unexpected scenario, uh, totally throws you for a loop, takes you back to the the drawing board, and the Lord very clearly laid out his plan for us. And it's neat to see 10 years later the Lord's plan in that and his sovereignty in that. So we, um, in 2012, we moved to Zambia, Africa, um, Zambia loves to boast that they are the real Africa because they are not a tourist country. <laughs> and um, they are a third world country. And so, especially if you're in Livingston, near Victoria Falls, we do have elephants walking down Main Street. Um, there are hippos, almost ran into one in the dark. Um, and you get to really see and live African life. And that is, was the joy of our first two and a half years in Zambia. Um, this was our first home in Zambia. We lived in a village in the bush five and a half hours outside of the nearest electric and water supply. <laughs> and so the Lord took us out. The story is way too much to share in this small amount of time. You're free, feel free to ask us. It's absolutely incredible how the Lord started the work in this village, but this village, was looking for, there was a few believers, and they were looking for discipleship in a church to be started, and so the Lord took us out there. We were blessed to be able to learn the local language, to live in the village with the people, and to develop amazing relationships. Um, Two of our children have Zambian mothers from that village who have really invested in their lives, and so We started with a tent on top of our truck because of the wildlife. Believe it or not, elephants will step on your tent if they don't know you're in the area. And so we all smushed into that rooftop tent. And as the kids got too big, we started tucking them into the truck underneath. Eventually, they outgrew the truck. And so we upgraded um, to an eight-person Coleman tent. And we lived in that tent for about a year and a half. Excuse me. Um, and by then, the elephants knew we were in the area, and we were safe. <laughs> um, this was my kitchen. The, the, the ladies built this kitchen for me, and it was such a blessing, um, but just a small glimpse into our life there. We cooked over fire, did our laundry by hand, um, no electricity, no cell phone, nothing. Um, and so those third world joys that you saw on that video was our life, and there is a richness. And a beauty to that life that we desperately miss, even to this day. Um, there's a joy in in being able to to live that lifestyle with those people and to develop their relationships. A little glimpse into our kids' lives. The top picture: homeschooling in the bush. Jamie cut the log for us for a bench, and so that was their school table. And Um, Yes, they were dirty 100% of the time until bedtime when they all got a bath because I was not going to hand wash bedding (laughs) very often. (laughs) So everybody got soaked up before bed and tossed into bed. And early the next morning, they were out and looked like that again. And I absolutely loved being able to raise my kids in that environment, the freedom of them just to have that pure childhood experience, um, playing with anything and everything they could get their hands on was just a wonderful joy as a mother. And if you ask our kids, Georgia loved it, but it wasn't her favorite time in Zambia. But if you ask the others, their favorite part of our life in Africa was our time in the bush. These were our neighbors. Um, we lived just outside a national park where all the wildlife was, and they don't have fences because the parks are too big, so the elephants and all the animals come in and out through the park. Um, so. Jamie had been cutting some trees and the elephants came out to hear what the sound was. They were very curious. Um, So the picture of the elephants in the bush, that was what that was from. Um, The other one is Warwick, holding on to our Land Rover with the elephant. I said, hold on to the truck, do not let go of the truck. Um, And then in the bottom picture, I was walking to our pit latrine early one morning and I found these leopard tracks in the sand on the path up to our pit latrine. and so called Jamie over, oh my goodness, look at these, they're huge. Um, I had a picture with my hand next to it, and it was bigger than my hand, but um, you couldn't see the track as well in that photo <laughs> as you can in this one, so I gave you the clearer photo.
0: So you always had to be a little bit cautious when you had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Um, yeah. yeah.
1: The kids heard hold it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> So eventually we were able to upgrade our home, and we ordered a safari tent from South Africa, built this thatched roof structure to hang the tent from. We finally built in real bathrooms off the back of the tent, so we didn't have to walk to the pit latrine at night. Um, And the man in the bottom picture is Pastor Arthur. He was our Zambian pastor, and he and his wife were our culture and language tutors and have have been a huge part of our lives, even today, Um, please pray for his wife, Beatrice. She's in need of a a life-saving surgery. She was supposed to have it on Tuesday, but the hospital didn't have blood on hand um, to be able to transfuse if needed, and so she was not able to have the surgery. So if you'll please pray for Beatrice and Arthur, that the Lord would just provide the, the necessary things needed for her to have this operation.
0: And that kind of transitions us into why we were out there doing what we did. So, here was the ministry in the village of Nambaza. Rather than planting one church that would end up having dependency on us, we I never pastored the churches out there. Rather, we did it the way that Jesus did. We discipled people by making, you know, sharing the gospel, seeing people come to Christ, discipling them to maturity, seeing the ones who were rising to be the leaders. And so, the very first pastors of the churches were, were Zambian believers that I was mentoring. And so in this picture, you'll see Kauke and Kakuse Baptist churches. And uh, it was an amazing thing. Whenever you're seeing those pictures of the wood being cut, the thing that you have to remember, because most people think of ministry as preaching or church services, that was just the icing on the cake the majority of the time, the way that we got the gospel into people's lives was by working side by side with them in all of the various building projects, such as building that, that uh, tent that we lived in or these church buildings. And so from that, you can see that these churches sprouted up. We planted two churches out there. Those two churches, since we left, we trained them how to be able to do the same thing. They have planted three more, so there's now five churches out there. Those five are pr- currently in the process of planting two more churches as they ripple out from their village to the surrounding villages. And so, as seems to be the uh, the pattern in our story, God took us from there to a place where we could multiply this by training up. More African missionaries who could be sent out by their local churches in order to spread the gospel around the world as well. And that's what took us up to Keetway. So, most of the time, people ask us, Oh, so did you work with the Hunts? Especially if you're here from Merrimack Valley Baptist Church, their sending church. The answer is, Well, yes, but not until after we had already done a lot of ministry on our own down in the villages of Nambaza. It was after seeing that happen, Phil said, that's the way we're going to reach Africa. And we've been wanting to start a a degree program for missions. We want to start training missionaries. We've been advertising it for years, but we don't have anyone who's experienced or educated to be able to do that. Because as an accredited university, you have to have a master's degree in the field that you're teaching And I was the only missionary with a master's degree in missions, evangelism, and church planting. And we had done it in the remote locations where the average student was going to end up reaching. And so that's what took us up to Central Africa Baptist University starting in 2015. And we were there uh, for six years. And now God has enabled it to be where we have over 40 graduates with a degree in missions or a diploma in missions who are out doing the work of missions seeing souls saved, believers matured, and churches planted.
1: The Lord also gave us the opportunity to continue our church planting ministry, and we partnered with the Hunts and another missionary family, the Washers, and we were able to help start Kiway Church, which is an international church. Kiway is the copper belt up in the copper belt of Zambia where they do all of the copper mining. So you have people coming from all over the world with mining contracts into Zambia for their jobs. And as we started looking around the area, there were a lot of churches for the Zambian people, but there were no churches for the international community. A lot of them um, had religious experience and nowhere to worship. Others of them had never heard the gospel. And so the Lord opened the opportunity for us to start Keetway Church, Um, It was such a fabulous ministry to be a part of. We had, on average, what was it, 12?
0: We had 17 17 nationalities
1: 17 nationalities on a given Sunday. And it was was such a blessing. So our kids started in the bush, and then they had the opportunity to have these friends from all over the world, all these different cultures. And the first time we came back to the U.S. after starting Keatway Church, the kids said, how do you greet people in America? Because we don't know what they do, because in, in our church in Zambia, you knew, like, okay, so these people you kiss on both cheeks, this people you kiss on one cheek, this people you hug on both sides, and, and you just knew how to greet the different people and the different ways that they greeted, but they rarely had to greet Americans, and so it was funny them asking, what do we, what do we do in America? How do we greet people when we get there?
0: And then from Keetway Church, God used us right at the end. Uh, it, coinciding with Keatway Church, we did small groups, just like here at Merrimack Valley. And one of the small groups was in a town an hour drive away. We would have people drive an hour to come to church. And so we started doing small group Bible studies out there, and that became our next church plant. So the church that we planted sent us out as missionaries to plant this next church, which was Chingola Church. And, uh, well, In uh, two weeks from today, Pastor Greg and Christine are going to join us at both of those churches, so we're going to have a great time in Zambia together. So there's a little bit about our ministry. Over the course of of those uh, ten years, hundreds of souls saved. We were personally involved in four church plants. But each of those has reproduced. Both Keetway and Shingola Church have been engaged in church planting as well. And it's getting to the point now that we're losing track of how many have been reproduced from all of them as they go out.
1: So quick sum it up. A little bit more about our life. Then uh, the Lord grew our family. Uh, we were able to adopt Chola and bring him into our family. And what a gift and a blessing that was to us We're so thankful that we could not have done that living in the bush, and the Lord clearly led us into that once we were in Kitwe. We had just a little idea for you is, yes, missionaries go out and we do ministry, but we also live life. And so we had a thriving homeschool community in Zambia, and we had so many wonderful activities together and just loved our homeschool families there. The girls did competitive horseback riding, we did hunting, Chola, uh, Chola also did horseback riding, worked golf lessons, we had our pets, we had our family traditions, we celebrated the birthdays, had the holidays, had our own little family culture there. Um, and missionaries, you know, just helping you guys understand, missionaries live real everyday life in their mission field. Yes, they are there to do the mission work, but a huge part of that is their everyday life uh, the girls' writing instructor? We had a great relationship with her. She doesn't know the Lord, and so so many opportunities to share the gospel with her and to build that relationship. And we're looking forward when we go back next week to be able to get to see her again and to spend some time with her, and just those opportunities to keep building the relationships.
0: And I think that's the point we've been trying to drive home throughout this entire missions conference. Missions. And our own local outreach and evangelism is less about programs and more about relationships. And we're going to look more at that this morning in just a few moments. But basically, that's what brought us here, the idea of multiplication. Now we have the opportunity to be able to train more missionaries and facilitate their ministry so that we can see them have the opportunity to go out around the world to countries and cultures that we've never been able to go to or might never get to go to. And yet they're able to go there, and we're helping multiply that, because the only way we're going to reach this world is by sending out more laborers into the harvest. The Lord told us that we should be praying for more laborers to go, and when he answers, it is incumbent upon the church and the institutions like IBM Global that come alongside of the local church to be ready to facilitate gospel advance as God sends out his servants around the world. And so that's what brought us here. This was in 2020, the uh, passing of the baton from Pastor Larry to me as the uh, president of IBM Global, and we've just seen our numbers climbing every year um, from 2021, 2022. While other agencies are struggling to bring in more people who are being sent out, our numbers keep growing and climbing because God is at work, and when you do God's work, God's way, He blesses it and grows it. And we're so thankful for that. So there's a glimpse, and as Mandy said before, a tiny glimpse of of what our life has been like. And we hope that now you don't just know us in our current role, but you feel like you know us a little bit more. And we'd love to share the rest of the story and get to know you more as well. So thanks so much. We've got a video that's going to help introduce a little bit more of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Let's continue with that.
2: So, when we use the phrase, the great imbalance, what are we talking about? Let's start with the basics, the great Commission. When the resurrected Christ stood on the side of a mountain in Galilee and said, go make disciples of all nations. It wasn't a suggestion, it was a commandment. Jesus even promised that before he comes back, we will accomplish his commission. So we're talking about the most important mission in the world. Now, today on planet earth, there are 7.75 billion people. And of those 7.75 billion people, Over 3 billion of those people are unreached, meaning they have zero access to the gospel. Most of them will be born, live, and die without ever hearing about Jesus. That's around 40% of the world's population. We break the whole population down into people groups. These are groups that share language, culture, tribe, et cetera. Every single pupil group can be put in one of two categories, reached or unreached. And the Great Commission involves taking the number of unreached people groups to zero. Now, in order to accomplish any task, it takes determination, a plan, and resources. But this is where you'll find the great imbalance. Today, there are hundreds of millions of Christ followers in the world. These are people who understand and want the Great Commission to be accomplished. That's you, me, every Bible-believing church you've ever heard of. These believers donate hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to their churches around the world. This money goes to pay for things like electricity, food, water, staff, missions, even things like handbells. I mean, everything. And of the hundreds of billions of dollars given to the church, roughly $47 billion is already allocated to missions to the nations. But we don't just give money. Around 400,000 people are working as missionaries to the nations. But here's where it all starts to fall apart. Remember our two groups, Reached and Unreached? Of these missions, resources, People, money already specifically set aside for missions to the nations, only 1% of the money and 3% of the missionaries go to take the gospel to unreached people in the world. That means 99% of our missions money and 97% of our missionaries are going to people that already have the gospel. This is the great imbalance and with the world's population growing at the rate it is now, every day we're losing more ground than we gain. This is why the global church needs a new perspective on how and where we spend our resources if we want to truly obey the Great Commission.
0: What a great illustration of the great imbalance. And the question then is, So what is it that we should do in light of that? Should we stop supporting those who are going to places that are already reached? Of course not. Because that's how we raise up more people who are able to reach the world in ways that we're not able to. There are countries that an American cannot get into. I've tried. You will get denied visas. But my students from Central Africa Baptist University can get in. And blend in and often experience far less persecution. And so it's not a matter of don't send people. It's a matter of sending people to where they've already been reached with the idea of training the next generation, equipping them, and then working together. The Western church has already gone through a pioneer era of missions. Now we're in the facilitator era of missions. We're the trainers, to be able to come alongside of those that still can get and need to get sent into the areas that are pioneer areas. So, it's easy to hear something like that and come up with perhaps an extreme response, an extreme application. Rather, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what God's Word says are the biblical patterns that we can use in order to help eliminate that great imbalance— and see the mission accomplished. Would you open up your Bibles today to Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Acts chapter 1. We have had a great week so far. For those who have not been with us, you might not have yet received one of these booklets. We've got them on the back table. People were passing them around. In here are notes for each of the messages, including the one we're going to do right now. And you're going to want to open up to session number four, entitled, Missions Illustrated, Biblical Patterns for Gospel Advance. If you've never been to a missions conference before, or perhaps you've been here so many times that it's easy to just get into the routine, you might ask yourself, why is it that we have a missions conference? Well, there's five reasons that we looked at just the other night on Friday night, but I think it's worth repeating. We want to create enthusiasm for missions by emphasizing the centrality of the Great Commission in the life of each believer and in the life of the local church. It does not matter what you do for a living. It does not matter what your occupation is. Missions should be the preoccupation of every believer because it's the preoccupation of our God. Number two, we want to educate the congregation on what missions is, how it starts, how it matures, and what it produces. And we've done a lot of that this week. Number three, expose the congregation to what God is doing around the world. That's what Mandy and I had the chance to do just a few moments ago. God is at work in Africa. And Africa is poised to be the leading continent for sending missionaries out around the world by the year 2050. But the question is, what is the gospel they're going to be preaching? Is it going to be an accurate biblical gospel or the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that is running rampant throughout the continent? Number four, We want to encourage every Christian to engage in missions by sending, supporting, and serving. And and we want to start promoting short-term mission trips for the coming year. In fact, on the back information center, there are three sign-up sheets. One for you if you want to show interest in going on a short-term trip this next year. From those who sign up, that's how we'll determine where to go. Number two, for those who might say, I think God might be leading me into vocational missions, sign up there so I know who to follow up with because I'd love to help you on that journey. And then uh, number three, we want to be able to think of how to reach our own local area with the gospel. And so we would like to find out who would be interested in being a part of a regular outreach ministry from the church to reach southern New Hampshire. In this conference, we have had these four targets in mind in order to accomplish those five goals that we just looked at. Target number one, the head. You have to understand what missions is. Two, the heart. You have to love what God loves so that you will want to get involved with it. Three, the hands. Develop the skills necessary to be a, a witness and a disciple maker. One who can then also carry that work on around the world. And lastly, the will. It's great to have knowledge. It's great to have heart. It's great to have skills. But how many people go to college to get a degree in something that they were passionate about and now had skills in and they don't use it? A lot of people. How many people in this room have hobbies that you're passionate about, you bought all the equipment for, and yet they sit in your closet? It's one thing to have access to the understanding and the resources. It's another thing to put it into action. And that's what the conference is all about. And so here's what we've done so far. If you haven't been with us or able to watch online, on Wednesday night, this was our big idea. The idea of the message called the mission defined was, since gospel advances the eternal purpose and passion of God, mission should be the preoccupation of every follower of Christ. Then on Thursday, we looked at the mission dissected. The Great Commission is comprised of two absolutely essential components, evangelism and discipleship, and they cannot be separated if we're going to have genuine obedience to the Great Commission. On Friday, we looked at overcoming the obstacle of fear in order to accomplish the mission, and the big idea of that night was the Christian who desires to obey the Lord's Great Commission must replace fear with love. And that brings us to today. Today we're looking at missions illustrated. Biblical patterns for gospel advance. And the one idea that I hope you'll be able to take with you as we leave this session is this. God did not only give us a mission to complete, but he gave us patterns and instructions on how to do the work and how to accomplish the mission. You know, nothing is more frustrating than being told what to do and not being told how to do it. I remember growing up in church, and we had a wonderful pastor, and he was very good at giving application, but I sat through a lot of sermons in various different settings, and and when others were not able to do quite the same thing that our pastor did, I I would get so frustrated, because I would say, okay, you told me what to do, but now I feel Even more helpless because he didn't tell me how to do it. Well, God doesn't want us to be frustrated that way. He gives us the patterns and he gives us the instructions on how to carry out his mission. We've done this throughout the week. I've asked everyone to give themselves a grade on how they're doing currently at fully obeying the Great Commission. Both evangelism and discipleship. Hopefully, throughout the week... Maybe even our answers have changed a little bit. But if you're here with us for the first time during this uh, conference, then I want you to just, in light of the overview I shared, give yourself a grade. Would you say you are doing an excellent job? Then give yourself an A. (laughs) Are you average? Then give yourself a C. But often I find that many of us might excel in so many other areas of the Christian life, but when it comes to our mission, the Great Commission— We often find ourselves in the D or F category. So if you can identify where you're at today, I want to give you the tools to help you move up at least the next level by giving you the skills and the understanding necessary to put these ideas into practice. By the way, if you're here with us for the first time today, maybe as a guest, as a visitor, Welcome to Merrimack Valley Baptist Church, and and we're so glad you're here with us, and today you're going to get to hear what we're really all about. You're going to get to hear the message that God has for all of mankind, and how we are passionate about sharing it with all those around us, including you. And so, now that we've asked this question— Now that you know how you're doing at this point or how you think you're doing, let's examine three patterns that provide instructions on how to do missions. Number one, the pattern of geographical expansion from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now you might look at that and say, wow, that just kind of jumps out of nowhere. Like, who's he talking to? This is Jesus Christ speaking his very last words before ascending into heaven. He's already been crucified, he's already been resurrected, and this is 40 days after the resurrection as he's now on a mountain in the town of Bethany getting ready to ascend into heaven, he's looking at his disciples and he says to them, all that I've taught you, all that training you've been given, you remember how I told you long ago that greater works than what you've seen me do, you're going to do? Now's the time and here's what you need to know. You shall receive power when the holy spirit has come upon you so they know there's a promise something's yet to happen the holy spirit's going to come when that happens they're going to sense the power of god flowing through them in a way that they haven't experienced before and when that happens what's the purpose for it why is why is god the father sending the holy spirit after god the son ascends to heaven It's in order to equip and empower the people of God to be the messengers of God. And so he says, when that happens, when the power has come upon you from the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this is the pattern of geographical expansion that we see in Scripture. It's meant not only to be specific instructions to these individuals, but a pattern that we can repeat ourselves. This, as he's speaking to the the people there, they're living in Jerusalem. This is where they're currently located. And so... The way that we are witnesses, the way that we're going to see gospel advance, ripple throughout the world, is to start in your own hometown. If you won't be witnesses where you are, then you certainly won't be witnesses when you are taken out of your comfort zone and into a culture where you don't know how the game of life is played. I mean, here you know the rules by which the game of life is played. We had to learn that when we moved here. As Mandy talked about our kids, not even knowing how to greet people in America. It was so funny for us and frustrating for them. Because in Africa, the way that you show respect to adults as a child is to look down and speak softly. So people would come in and they would greet my kids in the normal American bombastic way. And my kids would go, hi, my name's Lorelai. And it was almost like, why are you afraid? In fact, we had somebody at one point say, why don't you teach your kids to be respectful? And I said, well, they just demonstrated to you the highest form of respect any adult could get from a child where they grew up. We've taught them quite well. Maybe we need to be learning that same thing now as we are trying to reach a world that's constantly changing all around us. We think we're doing things properly because it might have been how things were done in Nashua, New Hampshire in 1973. But it's not 1973 anymore. And so here we are (laughs) seeing this pattern. Jesus tells them, first you be witnesses right where you are because if you won't be a witness there, what makes you think you're going to have the courage or the skill to do it elsewhere? You build up the skill by putting into practice What you know right where you are. And it's not just so that you can practice for something bigger and better. No, you do it because it's the right thing to do right here. And because God loves the people that he's put in your life right here. But he will use that to expand your circle of influence, which is the thing that we see next. He says, you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, your home city, and then to Judea. Well, Judea was the province in which Jerusalem was located. They didn't do things quite the same way that we do with cities and states. They would have cities and provinces. So this would be like us being told you be a witness in Merrimack, in Amherst, in Nashua, but then be a witness from there throughout all of New Hampshire. And then it's going to ripple out to the next layer, <laughs> to Samaria. To the whole country. And, and, and you know what? A lot of times that means crossing some very distinct cultural boundaries. Where people do things differently. And they hold to different values. You might be in the same country. But it doesn't necessarily make you think the same way. All you have to do is cross a border down to Massachusetts to find that to be true right here. But it doesn't just end there, does it? You start heading further. Go to New York. Keep it rippling out. You'll reach Florida. You'll reach Iowa and eventually the foreign land of California. I mean, our country is diverse. And if we're going to put this into practice, what we find is that we need to ripple out throughout all of these locations. Now, try as I might, as many airplanes as I'm on, I can't be everywhere at all times, right? So how do we actually carry this out? We're going to find that is a matter of teamwork. Wherever you are, be a witness. How many of you travel for work throughout the United States of America? Raise your hand. Uh Aha. So as you go, that gives you a chance to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. You can go from your hometown to the rest of New Hampshire to the rest of the country, and wherever you go, you're supposed to be a witness. It really isn't that complicated, is it? I was on the road quite a bit in the month of October, and I had the chance to share the gospel with so many people in airports and on planes, and one of the people that I had a chance to sit next to in the airport, turns out they were coming to visit their daughter, who was working at a school five minutes from my house. And so we had all sorts of opportunities. I got to share the gospel with them, and... um, I was hoping I'd even get to see them again, but they ended up having her, their daughter's schedule to work around. But that's the whole point. You can make connections and be a witness wherever God takes you. And then finally, you see the outer ring going to the ends of the earth, the whole world. That's the pattern that we see in Acts one eight. And the further you get from your center, the more geographic boundaries you cross, but also the more cultural boundaries you cross. The more skills are required in order to be able to help people identify where they're currently at spiritually, as well as where God wants to take them. But everything that we need in order to do that, we have in God's Word. In fact, that's what we're going to be looking at in the second service. We're going to be looking at a portrait of, of missions done well from Jerusalem to Antioch, from Antioch to the rest of the world. So stick around for that second service. Because right now we're laying out the form, and then we're going to see it modeled for us. Once we break this down, doesn't it seem far more attainable? Another way that you can do it is not only you as an individual, but as a church, right? You might never go to the continent of Africa, but as a church... We pray for, we financially partner with, and we sometimes send our own people from here out to go and encourage and partner with them tangibly and physically on the mission fields of Africa, of South America, of Asia. We get the job done of being witnesses by sending out representatives from us. Just as the Father sent Jesus, so we have been sent by him, and so we send out members as well-equipped missionaries. Isn't it a beautiful pattern? It's not that complex. We just have to be willing to follow it. And what I love about this, not only is is this image on the screen an artistic image that should come to mind when we think of Acts 1-8, but actually within Greek grammar, the picture here is of one beautiful interconnectedness. When Jesus spoke these words. And when Luke recorded these words, it actually had a linguistic image to it. From a book called Planting Churches Cross-Culturally, it says this, Ralph Winter also made a helpful contribution in his study by the use of numbers to indicate the cultural distance involved in carrying out our task. So he would have said, Jerusalem would be M-E, missions evangelism, one. Then Judea, M-E, two... ME3, ME4. So you're you're crossing these distances in order to get the gospel out. But then he says, geography as such does not affect the goal of the church and missions. The words of our Lord in Acts 1-8 are important here. Grammarians are quick to point out that the Greek construction in Acts 1-8 binds Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts together into one inseparable entity. Therefore, it's impossible to be obedient if we're not doing all four. What changes as we go from place to place, and sometimes as we stay in one place, is the cultural adaptation that must be made in order to communicate the message meaningfully and grow a church. Powerful stuff. And this was what was in the mind of God when he spoke these words. And so we've seen the pattern of geographic expansion. But now, let's look at the pattern for reaching the lost through our circles of relationship. And this is going to be based off of the principles of Acts 1-8. If we're looking at it from the standpoint of geography, let's think of it now from the standpoint of relationships. And this is where it's really going to be very practical for each one of us in this room. Because so many times people say, but I don't know anyone who needs the gospel. I look for opportunities, and there are none. <laughs> Maybe we're looking through a lens that's already preset in our minds rather than looking without that filter to be seeing what God actually intends in our relationships. Like a train travels on railroad tracks to its destination, so the gospel travels on the tracks of relationship. It starts with you. The gospel is for every person at every moment. It starts with you, and it spreads to those closest to you all the way out to the strangers that you've never met. And so this comes from a book called Concentric Circles of Concern. It gives the image that the gospel first hits you. You're the bullseye. You're the epicenter. Do you have family members in your home That need to be led to the Lord. That's, when you are looking at who should I be witnessing to, look to those who are around you the most. That is who God intends you to reach. But most people say, oh, but that's the hardest. It is the hardest. Because they know you at your worst. They know when you've been a hypocrite. They could easily throw back your past into your own face. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you love them enough? to share the gospel with them, even though they can do that? And are you humble enough? Are you broken enough to say, you're right? You're right, I did do all that. You're right, I still do struggle with sin. You're right about all of that. But that's the whole point of the gospel message. I needed it. And, and it is changing me. And it can change you. And if I believe this, and if I love you, how can I not share it with you? So it starts with family many of us skip right over that one. You know, as we had a chance to serve around the world, oftentimes I'm the one that's up front speaking or out in the community. And Mandy was back at our tent, cooking over a fire and washing clothes by hand, waiting for the cows to come rip it off the clothesline and make it dirty again. But you know what? We recognized early on her greatest mission field were the children that she was homeschooling. And then from that comes later, we're going to get to the uh, neighbors and associates. You know what would happen? Every day the ladies that lived closest to us would come because we were able to keep our fire going better than they would, so they would come and get coals from our fire to start a new fire. They would come to wash clothes with Mandy, or they would come and cook with Mandy, I'm telling you, evangelism and discipleship is all about life on life, not about programs. That's how we were able to see all those things happen. And it started at home. When our children share their salvation testimonies, you probably heard it when we joined. Every time it was, you know, they heard it from me. I shared the gospel with them every time. But every time that it actually came to the moment of decision, it was, and I went to mom She was faithful in her mission field. It starts at home. The gospel hits you, then it ripples out to family. Then it goes from there to relatives. Those that are blood relation or by marriage, but don't live in your home. Now, maybe everyone in your household is already a follower of Christ, but I guarantee that every one of us has someone in our, 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 our extended families, our relatives that need the Lord. I've been praying for my brother-in-law for over 30 years. How are we doing at sharing the gospel with him? We had a conversation with a few people on Friday night about this. Do I, do I just hammer the gospel at my brother-in-law every time I see him? No. But I speak to him about it regularly. And I live it out regularly. Regularly. I don't wait for him to bring it up because he's never going to bring it up. If I don't bring it up, how am I going to know when he's finally ready to talk about it, even if he's told me before he wasn't? I have to be the one persistent enough and loving enough to share that. From there, it ripples out to friends. If they are fr- <laughs> let us just think about the word friend. We say we care about friends. Friends, okay, if we're not sharing the gospel with them— Do we really care about them because one day they're going to be burning in eternal torment in hell? Is that what you want for your friend? I mean, this is real stuff. This isn't just hyperbole. This isn't some image. This isn't trying to tug on heartstrings. This is reality. So, (laughs) if they're our friends, how can we not? We already talk about things that we have common interest in, and then usually from my friends, I pick up interest in new things, and I find skills that I don't have. Well, we have knowledge that they need. See, like a train travels on railroad tracks to reach its destination, the gospel travels on the tracks of relationship. Then what about our neighbors or our associates at work? That's the next ripple out, isn't it? And sometimes we say, oh, but that one's hard too because they hold different political positions than I do or they hold different moral positions than I do. Absolutely they do. Guys, that's what a missionary deals with every day. And you're no different. Mission starts at home. God has you where he has you for a reason. Then, acquaintances, people that you just meet. You know them, recognize them by face, can't always remember their name. They're still in your circle of influence, and then finally you get to the stranger, person X, the person you meet on the airplane. Now, how is it that we can be more comfortable sharing the gospel with that person than the people that we say we love? It's because we, we never have to see them again, or so we think. At the end of the day, it really comes down to my comfort level. I love myself more than I love them. I love myself more than I love God. This book, Concentric Circles of Concern, best book on practical evangelism you will ever read. Buy it. You can get it on Kindle. Buy this book. It has study guides in the back. It would make a great Bible study for any of the groups here in this church, any small group. I'm telling you, you read this, it will will change your life because it gives you the skills on how to do what we're talking about, rippling out through all of these relationships. Now, let me give you a few things to help you right here and right now. Here are some questions that you can use, regardless of whether it is your family member or all the way out to person X. How do you get a conversation started? How do you switch it from normal things like the weather and sports to spiritual things? Well, there are five questions that come from a book called Share Jesus Without Fear. This book is another one that will radically change your life. It's a little redundant at times, but it is great because of these five questions. When I meet someone, and it doesn't matter what culture it is, I ask these questions because, number one, it helps them open up, but it also helps me know my starting point of how to start sharing the gospel. I need to know what they currently believe. And so, after we talk about things like, I love Uh, Guns and hunting or motorcycles. So I usually talk about things like that with somebody over at the Honda store and then They'll ask you. So what do you do? Oh, well, actually missionary moved back uh, From africa. Oh, really? What do you do there? Well, actually I tell people about something that's really pretty common around here with churches everywhere But you know what i'm finding not everybody really has heard it here this this day and age either And so I just tell them about jesus And, And you know what? Um I'm sure growing up here, you have some spiritual beliefs, you know, do you have any kind, not king, sorry, kind of spiritual beliefs? And then you just let them talk, because everybody has spiritual beliefs. Everyone's a theologian, even an atheist. Their theology is God doesn't exist, so let them talk. And instead of going, ooh, wow, you believe that? You know, don't, no, none of those judgment reactions. You just keep them talking. You go, oh, Really? That's interesting. Okay, tell me more about that. Let them talk. It's going to help you know what they currently believe. Then, number two, in your understanding, who is Jesus? And they're going to have an understanding of some— well, you know, he he is a good man, a good teacher, he's a prophet. Even within Islam, we think of him as a prophet. You'll hear all sorts of things, and sometimes you'll hear, oh, he's he's the savior of the world. And you might think, oh, they're a Christian. Not necessarily. There are a lot of religions that call themselves Christian, but they base their understanding of being a Christian on the works they do, not on the work that Christ did for them and the gift that they have received. And so now, now that I know what they believe about Jesus, and I ask, you know, I just keep them talking, "Mm -hmm, tell me about this, tell me about that. Then I ask, do you think there is a heaven or a hell and you'll be surprised at how many people who have just told you, oh, I believe in Jesus, Savior of the world, will say, oh, no, I don't, I don't believe in hell. Sometimes they don't believe in heaven either. Now, regardless of what they say, I always ask the next question anyway. If you died, where would you go? Which of those two would you go to? And without fail, they always tell me, well, heaven, of course. And I think you can have some fun with that. <laughs> well, wait a minute. I thought you just told me it didn't exist. Well, yeah, it doesn't. But if it did, I would go there because I'm a good person. It always comes back to that. I'm a good person. And I don't argue with them right then and there. I don't. It's not about trying to prove that they're not a good person at that point. It's about getting them to evaluate their own life. Because by me asking that question, it might be the first time they've ever actually thought of the answer. And as they're hearing the words pass out of their own mouth, they might be thinking well, maybe I'm really not that good of a person. I mean, instantly a doubt comes to mind of, do I know? And then I get to question number five. If what you are believing is not true, would you want to know? You see, they've been in the driver's seat this whole time. I'm just asking questions, and they can stop, or they can give us uh, as long of an answer, or as short of an answer as they want, And I want them to stay in the driver's seat Because if I switch gears right now It's going to be feeling like a a bait and switch It's going to make them feel like They are now in crosshairs of a target And I don't want them to be that way Because they're not a target They're a soul And I still want them to, to have a choice About whether or not they want to hear more And I've had people tell me No, I don't think I would want to know So guess what I do? I switch back to talking about motorcycles. And it's hard for me. Why? Because I genuinely want them to hear the gospel and receive salvation from their sin. But if I push ahead after they've said no, do you think they're going to be open to it? Or are they going to say, you are just like every other holier-than-thou Christian I've ever thought of. So I trust God. I trust the Holy Spirit to prompt their heart. I think he can do a better job of it than me, right? So I trust God, and we'll talk about motorcycles, and and usually they'll, about three to ten minutes later, go, so you're really not going to tell me, are you? What do you mean? Oh, come on. You're not going to tell me if what I'm believing is not true? Well, you said you didn't want to know, so I wanted to respect your decision. And then they always, okay, fine, go ahead and tell me. Why? Because they wanted to see how genuine I was. Did I care about them or my own reputation? Did I care about their soul or me being seen as this really spiritual person who could go back and brag to my church about all the people I led to the Lord? It takes time. You have to sacrifice some things on your schedule to go through these questions and listen carefully but I'd rather sacrifice my time right now than them spending an eternity in hell. So these are some things that I hope will help us, some practical things that I hope will help us. And now I just want to close by introducing us to... Our last point. By the way, if you want to get that book, Share Jesus Without Fear, this is what the cover looks like. It's also available on Amazon and is another great resource to equip you with the skills you need to actually go out and do the very thing we're talking about this week. But as we close, let's just think of this last pattern that we see in Scripture. The pattern for biblical reproduction of healthy churches. Church planting. And I'm not going to talk about this a whole lot right now because that's the main content of the next sermon. What I want to do is just illustrate to you what it looks like, and then we're going to walk through it next hour. This is what the Apostle Paul did. Now, at the hub of this cycle are going to be four truths that you need to know, and they're not written in your notes yet, so you might want to jot these down. At the hub of the this, of this cycle, none of these actions are going to matter if you don't have the atmosphere in the center. And here's what that would look like. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the divine director of the missionary enterprise. The Holy Spirit is the one who says, go. Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Set apart the hunts for the work to which I've called them. Set apart the Kirby. Set apart—name name the mission. Set apart— Maybe it's you, (laughs) to the work to which I've called them. It's the Holy Spirit who's the divine director of the missionary enterprise. Two, prayer was the atmosphere. They didn't send them off until after they had prayed. In fact, when did the Holy Spirit give them the instructions? They were already gathered in prayer and fasting. So prayer was the atmosphere. They're praying, and God says, send out Barnabas and Saul. Then they go, okay, well, Lord, we're going to pray and fast about that just to make sure— we're doing what you've said to test the spirits, whether they're of God. Yeah, this is God's will. Let's send them out. Prayer was the atmosphere. Three, scriptures were the foundation. They were basing everything on the scriptural commands to be witnesses. And fourth, the church was the agency. There were no Lone Ranger missionaries. Barnabas and Saul didn't go out of their own volition. They didn't say, hey, hey, hey. I am the missionary. That would be like saying that uh, during this election week, somebody just got up and said, hey, I am the governor. I am. I've declared it to be so, therefore I am. No, it, it had to be affirmed by the state population, right? Same thing with missions. Nobody gets to decide that they're a missionary. The Holy Spirit sets them apart, and the church affirms. The local church is the agency. Why is that so important? Because we always reproduce what we are. Dogs, when they reproduce, they don't give birth to cats, right? Horses, they don't give birth to cows. So if that's true in biology, isn't it going to be true in ecclesiology? If humans produce humans and dogs produce dogs, what produces a church? churches reproduce churches. Mission agencies don't. Bible colleges don't. Churches reproduce churches. They might have Bible colleges and mission agencies to come alongside of them, just like we have doctors and nurses in the neonatal units. But it's churches that reproduce churches. And what does the process look like? Well, it's 10 steps. First of all, missionaries are commissioned, number one. They're sent out. They're given this task, and then they go out and they contact the audience that they have been sent to. When they go out and contact the audience, first they're just getting acquainted with them. They're learning the language. They're learning the culture. If you want to see what that looks like, go and read through the book of Acts every time that Paul enters a new city, particularly Athens. Look at what he did as he walked around the marketplace and looked at all the idols that were around. Look at how he used that to then speak in front of the entire group at the Areopagus and say, men, I see. I perceive that you are very religious people. In fact, you have an altar to the unknown God. It's that God that I'm here to introduce you to today. He did his homework. He contacted the audience and learned about them. And then, only after getting enculturated did he communicate the gospel that's number three number four when you share the gospel we don't get to control the timing of how long it's going to take before souls get saved i mean if you look at timing william Carey felt like a failure for year upon year upon year but he's now known as the father of modern missions we don't get to control the timing but we do know this That God's word never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. And so, eventually, hearers will be converted. Not everyone who hears, but some hearers will be converted. Then we'll see believers congregated, coming together as a local church. When they come together, what is that for? Discipleship. They are being confirmed in the faith that what you are believing is accurate, and now you can grow, as Paul says, to be rooted and grounded in the truth. Then from there, leadership is consecrated. From within the, the, the congregation, leaders emerge. They appointed elders from within. And then the missionaries left. The believers were committed to the work of the Lord. Well, that's a wonderful thing because he can do the work better than the missionary that he sent out to do it anyway. But the hardest thing for a missionary, because they love the people, that they've been ministering to, and they're afraid that maybe after they go, people will fall away from the truth. It's very hard for missionaries to step away. Our goal is to work ourselves out of a job, but many missionaries struggle with a need to be needed. And that's a spiritual problem that they're going to have to deal with. That's a lack of maturity that they have to grow out of. But that's the biblical pattern. Believers are commended to the will and work of the Lord as the missionary moves on to do it again elsewhere. Then, Although they have left, the relationships are continued. Wherever Paul ministered, he always continued the relationship. He would go back and visit. That's what missionary journey number two was all about. (laughs) Go back and visit, and then they took it even further. But if he couldn't visit, he would send somebody else to visit. He would send Timothy or Titus. Then he would write letters the letters that we now have the privilege of reading in the New Testament. The relationship continued even after he was gone but it was a different kind of relationship as he had now commended them to the Lord. Then they would go back to where they had started. Sending churches would convene to hear the report. Look what all God has done. They would go back. Paul and Barnabas went back first to Antioch, and then in chapter 15 of Acts, they went all the way back to Jerusalem. Look what the Lord did. They convene with the sending churches to give a report and fuel the passion for missions. And guess what happens next? The cycle repeats. That's why it's called a cycle. Missionaries are commissioned. Audience contacted. Over and over. That's the pattern we see throughout the New Testament. That's the pattern that went dormant for many years, called the Dark Ages. That's the pattern that was resurrected with William Carey and the father of modern missions. That spread throughout. Our era today, and that's the pattern we're still spreading today. This is what it looks like, but it could actually be divided into even smaller steps. Each of those ten steps, look at how many steps you can divide it into. I don't say that to overwhelm you. I say it to go, isn't it wonderful that we can take a piece that might seem too big and break it down into very manageable baby steps? We find them all throughout Scripture. And the author of the book that I'm quoting from His name is David Hesselgrave. He even said, you know, not everywhere. Every every place is different. Some cultures are harder than others. But on average, you know, if we look at that pattern, we could probably see a new church planted in two years and three months to, to go from the cycle of being sent out to then being ready to come back and report. Now that, you might say, no, that's not possible. It is possible. That's what God allowed us to experience. Now, we understand Zambia was different than some places. But we were out in the villages of Zambia where they had never heard about Jesus, and they, they were deeply entrenched in witchcraft. So it wasn't an easy walk in the park either. And yet, those two churches that you saw in the pictures earlier, that was done in two years and three months. And those two churches then multiplied— so where there's those five, and those five are multiplying again. It can be done. Is it going to be done that quickly in Japan? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's different soil. It takes longer. But when you follow God's pattern, you will see results that only he can bring. So for you to learn more about how to apply that, I would encourage you to get this book too, Planting Churches Cross-Culturally by David Hesselgrave. Today we have seen this idea of missions being illustrated in biblical patterns. God did not only give us a mission to complete, he gave us patterns and instructions on how to do the work and to accomplish the mission. Yes, we've targeted the head and the hands today. We need to put this knowledge to use next. What's that going to look like? Let me just ask you to Answer these questions for yourself. How can you participate in each ring of the pattern of geographic expansion of the gospel from your Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, of the earth? Because if, if you don't actually pinpoint that, you're never going to do it. Number two, go through the rings for the pattern of reaching the lost through your circles of relationship and start identifying names of people that you can share the gospel with, that you should share the gospel with. Number three, how can you assist church planting missionaries in accomplishing the church planting cycle that we just looked at? Maybe it's by giving more to the work. Maybe it's by going and helping on a short-term trip. And lastly, could it be possible that God wants to equip and send you? Right now, as you sit here, do you sense that God might be calling you to be one of those who is sent out across cultures? Across the cultural boundaries in order to spread the gospel to others. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all that you've done. We thank you for the patterns you've given us. And we pray now that we would put them to use. That we would not just have good knowledge that we are (laughs) uh, encouraged by, but rather we would go out from this place ready to be your hands, your feet, and your your mouth to speak the message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.